Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. Hello, and um, I'm looking forward to this time with you, and uh, trust that, as Doug prayed, that the Lord will work in all of our hearts today. So my name is Arkady, as uh, Doug said. Annika is my amazing wife. I'm Ukrainian. She's South African, and we have three Afro-Ukrainian children. So 12, 9 years old, and 6 months old. We have been serving in Ukraine for many years. Uh, we've been, the whole ministry there started with English evangelistic camps where we would invite those people who would be interested in learning English and through the week progressively share the gospel with them as we teach them English. And so two churches resulted as a, um, as a product of those camps. And uh, I, was, uh, I am a pastor of the second church plant and it's, it's exciting uh, to be involved in that ministry, exciting to serve the Lord in the capacity of a pastor. And uh, thank you so much for investing into those camps, especially those who came and those who supported those who came. So it's a wonderful ministry. We also uh, are directors of the Missionary Training Center in Ukraine, and the purpose of that center was to mobilize Eastern European Church uh, for missions. Uh, Eastern European churches for many years were on the receiving end uh, from the Western churches, South African church, South Korean church, uh, U.S. church, Canadian church, German churches, etc. But they kind of battled to see themselves as centers as well. So a part of that uh, project was to mobilize them and train people for missions and send them further on. So that's kind of the ministries uh, we're involved in. And uh, we had big plans for this year as well. Great plans, but the war hit. It was something unexpected. And as the war hit, the plans, the hopes, the dreams, the desires for this year, they kind of vanished. And despair settled in the hearts, in our hearts as a family and in the hearts of the nation. All around you could see destruction, uh, and destruction is happening on every, I mean, on a daily basis, every day. As we speak, there's destruction happening in Ukraine. You probably saw on the news the number of refugees that fled Ukraine or were displaced internally. Over 10 million people. Over 10 million people, refugees. Over 6 million to Europe, 4 million internally displaced. No idea, absolutely no idea when this will all end when the war will come to an end. Tremendous uncertainty came upon people. Tremendous uncertainty came upon the country. There's only one thing that we can know for sure, and that's what Putin wants. He wants peace. A piece of Georgia, a piece of Ukraine, and so on. Besides that, no idea. No idea. No idea as to what will happen next. Our reality, we became refugees. All of a sudden, we were woken up at around 4.30, 4.45 in the morning because our friends in America, they were still not going to bed and watching on the news that Ukraine is under assault and it's being bombed. And so they were sending messages, are you okay? So I went to the phone. I thought somebody was just going crazy sending messages at this time uh, in the morning. I looked at the phone and all of the messages, they have the same message. Are you okay? Why shouldn't I be? So one checked the news and was like, oh, I guess there are reasons they're writing. 
things changed overnight. And then from having plans, having dreams, having desires for a year to come, you came to a point, or we came to a point, when we didn't know what we're going to do next hour. Should we go? Should we stay? Should we go? Should we stay? What will happen with the church? What will happen with uh, the training center? What will happen with our lives? No idea. We were not even in the city where we lived. We went to the Western Ukraine to uh, do some paperwork for little Eric. He was not even three months old. What's next? No idea. No idea. All of a sudden, we uh, were informed that uh, insulin supply may be jeopardized, and our uh, oldest son, 12-year-old, he's diabetic. So no insulin, he dies. So that, that prompted us to thinking about leaving Ukraine, and we did. We left for Hungary because there was South African embassy in Hungary. And we were told that uh, it will take just a few days, uh, two to three days, for Eric to get his emergency traveling certificate because he didn't have any ID at all. All he had was just a Ukrainian birth certificate. So we got across the border, we went to Hungary, and it took six weeks for an emergency traveling certificate. Don't get into the emergencies. So while we were in Hungary, we were working with the refugees. We got involved in that, and it was a very, very rewarding experience, and I'll share about that a little bit later. And we finally got our papers, and we came here, and um, a lot of people meet us, and they get excited, saying, guys, you're safe, and this is so true, we're safe. But you know, safety is, is a scary thing. When you stop running, your mind frees up to asking yourself questions. What's next? How will I live? How will we live? Where will we live? Kids ask us this, these questions. There are no answers. We don't know. We don't know. It's kind of living one day at a time. And the challenges are there, and we're still facing them. We face a lot of challenges internally, things we think about, things we process, things we heard about, the losses that we mourn, but also losses in terms of ministry. 80% of our church was on the run, just like this, overnight, running for their lives. And uh, now they're all over Europe, Romania, Moldova, Slovakia, Austria, Germany, some in the U.S. This is the church. This is the church that we've been investing to. This is the church we've been serving to, and it's just gone. About seven people just left in Odessa. Russia's assault on Ukraine is a scary thing, not just in physical uh, sense, but in the sense of the gospel. If you've watched what Russia has been doing to missionaries and uh, the churches, evangelical churches, uh, within Russia, it's, it's a scary thing. It was just putting more and more obstacles forth so that the gospel wouldn't go forth. Churches would face more and more limitations as far as uh, sharing the good news. Russia's occupation or uh, Russia's um, control over Ukraine would prevent the gospel from going forth. Well, at least will create a significant obstacle for it. Russia's occupation will promote dictatorship in Ukraine. The question is, why would God do that? Why would God allow that? Why would God do that for the country with the highest number of evangelical believers in Europe? Why would God do it to the country, which in so many ways was his light in the area? Why would God seem to be so ignorant to people's prayers? How many people prayed for peace? How many people are praying for peace? 
how many people in South Africa, all over the world, prayed for the peace in Ukraine. Ukrainian flag over days filled up internet, social media. People were putting uh, Ukrainian flag on their avatars on Facebook and probably other uh, social networks as well. People pray and pray and pray to all-loving, omnipotent God. And it seems that contrary to all of those prayers, things just escalate. Things just get worse. Why would that happen? It seems that sometimes God works in the worst possible way. Discarding our feelings, our desires, our dreams, our goals, our plans. But why? Why? Why would he do that? Why would God do that? How should we respond to that? I hope that today in uh, Jonah 4, we would be able to find some answers and clarify these things. And look how we can deal with that. So if you could open Jonah 4, please, in your Bibles, or on your smartphones, or on your tablets. And if you don't have any of the above, you can maybe uh, peek into whatever your neighbor has. The book of Jonah is in the Bible. And uh, the Bible is God's story of redemption. God is still busy developing his story. And we, whether we realize it or not, are a part of it. Part of God's story. Book of Jonah talks about a prophet, a prophet named Jonah who was sent to Nineveh. Nineveh was an Assyrian city, and Assyrians, they were interesting people. They liked war. They enjoyed war. War for them was worship. They worshipped Asher, and they believed that wherever Asher is, things are good. So if we want to worship Asher in a good way, let's spread his reign and other gods must, must fall before him. They would fight. Assyrians would fight and do whatever they could to spread the reign and the borders of the empire. So if you are a neighbor of Assyrians, wherever you're at, it's not a question of if they will wage a war on you. It's the question of when. So Jonah was a prophet, and the role of the prophet was to bring the word of God to people. Uh, Jonah is not super famous in the Bible. He is mentioned in 2 Kings 14.25. And uh, there he mentioned uh, with his prophecy that was fulfilled. God professed a victory to Israel, and this prophecy was ful fulfilled. Jonah was a prophet during uh, the time of Jeroboam II, a king that the Bible doesn't speak so nicely about because of his sinfulness and because he was not walking in the ways of the Lord. However, he was a very successful ruler. Elites prospered under his reign. Israel was expanding, basically coming to the, to the uh, limits of the promised land, the land that was promised to Abraham. So there were a lot of nationalism in, in Israel, People, people were excited about what is happening to the land. This is great stuff that, that, that's going on. However, if you look at the contemporaries uh, of Jonah, Amos, and Hosea, those guys were not thrilled about what was happening with Israel. They were appalled. They were talking about the sinfulness of Israel. Well, Jonah seems to be excited about 
Israel developing, somehow ignoring its sinfulness. He was more concerned about success and prosperity of his nation in the physical sense. Jonah was probably the worst candidate to send to the Assyrians, the enemies. To send them with repentance, the message of repentance. Go and tell them. Go and tell them. The command of God to go and prophesy to Nineveh encouraged Jonah to do some sport activities and some tourism. He runs to the port. He finds a ship that goes to the Father's port on the opposite end of the world so that he would not have to fulfill God's promise. So the first chapter of the book of Jonah tells us that, yeah, he gets the message from God, gets on the ship, gets out into the sea, God sends the storm, sailors are concerned, they find out that Jonah is the reason why the sea is so stormy, they try to find a solution, Jonah says, I have a solution for you, throw me aboard, and I'll die, but I will not go and fulfill this promise, the, the, the mission that you've entrusted me with, God, just kill me, kill me, God will stop the storm, I'm the reason, but I'm willing to die instead of going to Nineveh. God sends fish to Jonah. Fish swallows Jonah. Jonah, on the third day, in the stomach of the fish, realizes, okay, he needs mercy. He needs God. God shows mercy. Fish spits him out. Yeah, sometimes it's mercy when you're being spat out. And uh, God speaks to Jonah again. Sends him to Nineveh uh, with the same message. So go tell Nineveh. This time Jonah listens and goes. And people repent. Surprise, surprise. Look at how chapter 3 ends in verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. God's plan worked. God's mission to Nineveh was successful, and Jonah was a part of that. This is a great opportunity to rejoice and to be happy about the work of God. It resulted in salvation of so many people, the whole city. The great city of Nineveh is saved by the great God from the great wrath. This is a dream of a prophet and a missionary come true. You preach the gospel, you preach a message of repentance, people repent. The whole city repents. This is incredible. Okay, well, end of story. Jonah sent with a mission, mission accomplished. End of story. But there's chapter 4 for some reason in the book of Jonah. Why in the world would God place chapter 4 into this book? Now let's try to answer this question together. Let's read chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Okay? But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. This guy has serious problems. He wants to die, chapter 1. Chapter 4, he wants to die again. The heart of Jonah is actually being revealed in these verses. Based upon what Jonah says, we can draw a few conclusions. First of all, 
Jonah is exceedingly unhappy about the fulfillment of God's will. God wanted to forgive Assyrians. They repent. He forgives Assyrians, does not send the calamity. It drives him crazy. Jonah is mad with God. He's angry with God. A prophet of God is angry with God and is upset about his will being fulfilled. Jonah opposes God and rebukes God. Well, didn't I tell you, God? I was still at home when I was, I knew that. I didn't want to do that. What were you thinking, God? Jonah fled precisely because he did not want for Assyrians to receive forgiveness. He ran precisely because God is who he is, merciful and gracious, who does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. And that is why, God, I ran away, because I don't want you to forgive them. Jonah knew the character of God. So Jonah has this intellectual understanding of God's principles. However, when it comes to real-life applications, we see a problem. Jonah has a different standard of perceiving sinfulness of the Assyrians to his own sinfulness. He received mercy just in chapter 2 from God when the fish spat him out, and now he's upset that the same God who saved him shows mercy to another nation. Why would that be? Well, it is because something else became to Jonah more important than God and God's plan. Welfare of his country was more important to Jonah, more joy-worthy, more desirable, more satisfying than God and God's plan. Now, desiring good for your country or desiring to be fit or desiring to be merry or desiring to have a clean house, those are not bad things. Those are good desires. Yeah, I saw somebody smile when I said clean house. Those are not bad things. Those are good things. To desire those things is a good thing. However, when you place this desire above God's will, about God's word, about God's plan in your life, it points to the fact that something else became more important to you than God. And we start worshiping that thing. It points to the fact that an idol was erected in the heart. And we start worshiping this idol. An idol of my body, an idol of my country, nationalism, idol of, of uh, husband or wife or whatever. Something else, something else becomes more important. And as a result, we allow this something else, whatever that is, and not God, to determine our thoughts and our actions. This something else will determine what you rejoice about, what you are sad about, where to go, whom to avoid, who to have the relationships with, and how you talk. This idol will determine that. It is not God anymore, but the idol shows you how to live. In response to God's mercy, Jonah desires death. Death to him is better than seeing God's grace shown to his enemies. We may think that Jonah is a weird guy, but Jonah's theology was determined by the condition of his heart. And that is why there's absolutely nothing strange about how he responded and acted. His responses were perfectly in line with the object of his worship. Instead of living in God's story and following God's plan, 
Jonah chose to create his own story where success and prosperity of his nation was God. He wanted his story, not God's story. Well, this is Jonah. What about us? Are there people in your life whom you would rather see punished than forgiven? And don't rush the answer. Think about it. Are there people whom you would rather see punished and pay for what they've done to you than receive God's mercy? Think of the enemy you have. Would you be able to rejoice, actively rejoice, seeing God's grace and forgiveness in this person's life despite the pain that they've inflicted to you? See, personal idolatry dehumanizes people. Jonah was willing to see the great city perish and then have any problem with it. If you are not willing to join God and his plan and live in his story, you, like Jonah, will eventually discover yourself broken inside with bitterness, which will be eating you up. You will be discouraged, angry, and sitting in the midst of your broken dreams. But God doesn't leave Jonah, nor does he abandon us. His wonderful story of saving the Ninevites included working in Jonah's heart. God's plan of saving this world includes you and includes working and changing your heart. God ministers to Jonah by revealing Jonah's self-centered heart to him and pointing to the fact that it's the heart that is the source of those strange responses. Read from verses 4 to 9. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and make, made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm would shoot the plant so that it withered. <clears throat> when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. He has this dying thing going. And said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I am so angry, I wish I were dead. Jonah needed God's mercy as much as the Assyrians did. Jonah, as well as the Assyrians, needed to turn away from his idols. He needed God's forgiveness as much as they did. And an interesting thing is that Jonah knew all about it. But it was an intellectual knowledge. In reality, Jonah lived according to what he believed. And that was that Israel needs to be a successful and prosperous nation. Jonah is stubborn, ignores God's questions. Deep down inside, he still hopes that God will destroy the Ninevites. That's why he goes out, sits, and waits. Maybe God will change his mind and still blast them out of this earth. God doesn't abandon Jonah, but wants to teach him. He grows a tree to provide a shadow in, the, in order to relieve the time, uh, relieve for a time Jonah's suffering while he's waiting. And look at Jonah's response. 
verse 6 tells us that Jonah is very happy. He rejoices over the plant. Now look back at verse 1. That's the response of Jonah to the salvation of the Ninevite. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. See what, the, see what idolatry does? It perverts the system of values. It perverts Jonah's system of, of values. In Jonah's system of values, a death of the plant or a plant is a great joy. The death of the plant uh, is, 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 a, is a calamity. A salvation of 120,000 people is a calamity. That's a perverted system of value that is perverted by sin and personal idolatry. The next day, God destroys the plant, sends the wind, sends the sun, and Jonah doesn't call to God as he did in chapter 2. He doesn't. The idol to which Jonah attached his identity is threatened, and thus there's no sense in living life further. Life lost its meaning. It is better for him to die. Death for Jonah was more understandable and acceptable than joy from fulfillment of God's plan. Jonah just battled to believe that the same God who spared the Nineveh, who cared for the Assyrians as well, could take care of him. We also tend to think like that at times when we forget who saved us. When we do not remember that in the light of God's redemptive story, the only difference between the saved ones and the worst sinner is the grace of God. Jonah battles to understand it, but God is revealing his fatherly heart to him. Verse 10 and 11, But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend, tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell the right hand from the, their left, and also many animals? This is the heart of God. A heart of God which does not wish for the death of the unrighteous. Without understanding the heart of God, without understanding that we live in His story, those who believe in Him can be saved, but live life of bitterness fear, unforgiveness, hatred, up to the point when death would seem like the only reasonable way out. The book ends with God's words, and we don't know everything that happened to Jonah, but I can assume that Jonah's heart was changed, otherwise he would write such a critical book about himself. Now what about your story? How will your story unfold? Coming back to the war in Ukraine, Believers won't be able to understand what is going on until we remind ourselves that this is God's story. And His story has redemption as its purpose. War is a horrible thing. It's a tragedy. It's, a, it's an evil thing. But let me tell you what the Lord has accomplished in the midst of this war since the time it started. A lot of people were running. And believers were helping. All along the way, our church, uh, in partnership with other churches, uh, was participating in evacuating some of the people from um, the eastern part of the country, sending them to the borders, and then hosting people at the borders. Some other churches were doing that. And then some other churches were helping people to get across. And then other churches were meeting people on the other side, housing people and, and feeding them. It was a, a tremendous thing that started happening. When uh, we got across the border, we were sitting at the 
gas station in Hungary waiting for somebody to come and pick us up. We were speaking English between us, uh, each other, and um, uh, a family sat next to us. They were from nearby Kiev. And the lady started uh, talking to us in Ukrainian. I don't know how she realized that we speak Ukrainian or Russian, but she did. And uh, she approached us with a question, are you guys believers? I don't think that everybody who speaks English is a believer. And you don't normally ask this question. It was a surprise. So we asked her, yes, we are. Well, how did you know? And she said, when we were waiting at the border, and an average time on the Polish border of waiting outside was 72 hours. That's in the cold, not in South African cold. It's like proper cold. So... Uh, Waiting open air for 72 hours with kids, with your elderly parents, in order to get to, to, to the border so that you could, you could uh, cross over. And believers were serving tea and cookies to, to this lady. And she was so impressed by that. She said, yeah, I, I see that you guys are like, like those people that I met over there. Uh, I'm, I'm so excited about that. It made me think about God. I want to start going to church when uh, we'll come to a point of our final destination. I said, this is, this is great, but it's not going to help you. Going to church will not save you. And it presented an opportunity to share the gospel with, with the lady right there. At the border, while we wait, she's a refugee, we're refugees. But amongst that, amongst that, God is doing his work and reaching people with the gospel. God shook up churches all over Europe, in Ukraine as well, and reminded them that they are to be the light to the world. Churches started to reach out. Churches started mobilizing their resources, no matter where they're at, whether they're in Ukraine or in Europe. They started thinking, how can we help? What can we do? How can we get involved? Those believers who came uh, to Europe from Ukraine, they create a tremendous potential for revival in Europe. The number of evangelical believers from Ukraine in Poland now is larger than the number of evangelical believers of Poland, okay? So there's a tremendous potential that can be utilized and used for God's glory. When we were in Hungary, we got involved in serving the, the refugees, <clears throat> and the first evangelistic outreach we had with them, 12 people showed up, two and a half families, shared the gospel with them, well-received, wonderful time. So we decided with, with the local church there to do it next week as well. Next week, on Friday, the church wanted to know how many will show up. More than 50 registered to come, and I don't know how many came on Sunday. Over 60, over 70, I don't know. But there was not enough place for Hungarians in the room, so they had to kind of uh, step outside. So I asked the church afterwards, I said, guys, did you do anything? Uh, more advertising? What did you do that so many people came? They said, we did nothing. Those who do not believe in God tell others who do not believe in God to come and hear the gospel, okay? Unbelievers invite unbelievers to hear the gospel. This is what's happening. And also, I don't know when this war will end, but I think that uh, it will result eventually in the fall of the regime in Russia, in the fall of the regime in Belarus, and it will open up tremendous territories to the gospel. will open up a lot of land, a lot of people to, to hear the gospel. So in terms, of this, uh, in terms of eternity, this war make, makes no sense because it's temporal. 
countries and borders, they're temporal as well. At the end, there'll be only one kingdom left that will last forever. Only one. Soul, though, is an eternal category. And as his children, we need to learn to think in eternal categories. What if God's plan to spread his kingdom would cost Ukraine its independence? What if? Is that an acceptable cost? It hurts me to say, but yes. Yes. If that will expand his kingdom, yeah. It will be very painful, though. But sometimes God works out his redemptive story in the ways that are different from what we would imagine. But he always remains unchanging in his attributes. He's faithful, merciful, forgiving, the one who doesn't wish for the death of the sinner. He is God who loves people so much that he gave his only son as a sacrifice so that those who believe in him would not perish, would not die, but have an eternal life. I would encourage you, as you think about this war in Ukraine, as you see the headlines on the news or maybe on the TV, do not focus on what Putin will do, what is Putin's plan, or what will West do in response to Putin and his plans. Rather focus on what God is doing and seek, actively seek, how you can join God in his story. Join God in his story. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your goodness. I thank you that in the midst of this mess, Lord, in the, in the midst of this tragedy that is happening in Ukraine, in the midst of the, of the mess that it causes for the whole world, with the prices, oil prices hikes, and, and, and the, the wheat prices hike, etc., Father, we don't understand. We don't. But we know who you are. We know your goodness, your purpose, your love, your grace, Father. We know. And so I pray as we are faced with this tragedy, Father, that we would not be distracted by what is happening around, but we would be actively seeking what you are doing. That we would be actively seeking how can we join your story, fulfilling your will, wherever we're at, to your glory and to the expansion of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name I pray.